This song is for all those people out there who just don't understand what archaeology is all about. Nothing worse than being an archaeologist and having someone come up to you and say, Dude, you must be into dinosaurs. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Ranger travels as one will cause. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Rage of trials as one will cause. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Are you getting it? Maybe? Hello everyone, welcome church shirts and shards to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. It is finally 2022. Can you honestly believe that it is 2022. I just, I remember being really excited about 2020 for non-plague related reasons. And then now it's 2022. I just, it's crazy, guys. It's just crazy. So today I wanted to introduce you guys to a new concept that I'm having this year. I know it's weird to kind of spice up the podcast some, at least for me, because as I said in my Where is Archie Fantasies podcast episode, whatever, what's the last official podcast that was on here? I kind of lost interest, A, and B, kind of ran out of topics to talk about. There's only so much pseudo-archaeology you can actually talk about before you're just kind of repeating yourself. But that doesn't mean that you can't keep talking about pseudo-archaeology and maybe change the direction that the podcast normally goes in. You know what I mean? So I'm going to try to keep the pseudo-archaeology and fantastic archaeology theme going with this podcast, but I want to come at it from some slightly different angles here and there. That doesn't mean we won't be occasionally talking about things like Atlantis and aliens again and again and again, because it comes up again and again and again. And to me, it's important to kind of interact with those things when they pop up, because just because I did a podcast six years ago about Atlantis doesn't mean that somebody today is going to be able to find that podcast right off the bat. So with that in mind... We are not talking about Atlantis today. So with that in mind, I decided to plan the year. And each month of the year, I picked a topic to kind of guide not only the podcast topics, but also the videos that I'll be doing on the Archie Fantasies YouTube channel. Also, I'll be cooking over there, which will be interesting here in a second. So this month's theme, so the theme for February is going to be Lovecraft and Cthulhu and their use of archaeology in cosmic horror and in um, just horror stories in general. So as my listeners may know, because you're all so savvy, uh, the, the idea of archaeology, or the trope, I guess, of archaeology gets used in horror stories a lot. I mean, how many times have we watched a show or a movie or read a story or anything 
where it starts off with an archaeologist unearthing unspeakable evil or disturbing a uh, gravesite and it's ticked off the ghost and now the ghost is haunting everything or they bring back a cursed object from wherever they were researching and now they have to deal with the curse of the object. It's an ongoing trope that you see everywhere and there's a reason for that. When archaeology first started developing as a field in general back in the well, I hate to say it, but the Victorian era. Haha. <laughs> we can blame the Victorians for pretty much everything when it comes to pseudo-archaeology. Pretty much. Yeah. And, and the use of archaeology as a horror trope is no different. But of course, back then, you would have been an antiquarian. And of course, as the field was not professionalized, quote unquote, as we like to think of it today, you know, pretty much anybody who had the time and the money could go be a archaeologist or an antiquarian, which meant basically anybody who could afford it could go and look for ancient relics or look for old ruins or just in general both study the past and the remains of prehistory, but also kind of speculate on what that prehistory would have or should have looked like. And in the Victorian era, and especially with the antiquarians and going forward, it was more of what the Victorians wanted history to be in order to support basically their superiority in society during that time. So a lot of times when you look at Victorian or early archaeology, you'll see a lot of very Eurocentric um, themes when it comes to the interpretation of sites and things. You also see a lot of interest in areas that are basically connected biblically because a lot of people were trying to, we, we forget the Victorians were kind of religious and using archaeology to prove the the authenticity of the Bible kind of was a thing. So you see that a lot in early archaeology and, and the quests in, of antiquarians in the beginning of all of this. That doesn't mean everybody was doing that. Some people were just kind of like looking around their homelands and studying like the burial mounds that would pop up. I, I'm thinking of like the stone cairns in um, Ireland and Scotland. Um, there are several archaeologists, both female and male, who were really into those and really wanted to study them and wanted to know what they were for and why they were there. And, you know, sometimes people have a genuine interest in the origin, the actual origin of something. And that kind of in that time period fell under the purview of the antiquarian and the archaeologist. But how this concept of the antiquarian and archaeology gets pulled into horror and and ghost stories and suspense stories of the day that time period is that archaeology was studying things that had a forgotten history and jeb card has talked about this on the podcast and in his book spooky archaeology and ken fader has also spoken about this on the podcast and in a few of his lectures and a few of his writings it's the idea that an object or a space 
the history of that location or object has been lost to memory. And so there is no recent memory to draw on what that thing or site is. And so the human condition then, I'm using fancy words, can you tell, uh, tries to create a explanation for why these things exist, why this thing is here, why this thing was created. And back during the Victorian era, the idea of context hadn't quite developed fully yet. So there was a lot of finding individual artifacts or finding individual sites or just like a, a structure or a wall on a larger site and then creating a, a whole interpretation based on one thing, one attribute, which today we don't do that because we understand in archaeology today that the importance of a site or the story of a site or an object is very dependent on the context in which you find it. If I just find a creepy doll out in the woods and all I focus on is the creepy doll in the woods, then it's a creepy doll in the woods. But if I look at the larger context and I look at the landscape and I look at the maps of the area, and if I, you know, take the time to actually like investigate the area that I'm finding this creepy doll in, I may find out that, you know, the farmer up the hill a bit has young children and those children play in the woods frequently. And, you know, recently or in the past year or so, one of the children lost a toy, lost their favorite doll or not even their favorite doll out in the woods. And what you're really finding is just a lost toy. And that kind of takes the creepy aspect out of it, except for that whole Valley of the Uncanny, which a lot of us, that's why most of us have issues with dolls, because <laughs> they're creepy, period. Um, but it does take the mystery out of the object. It is no longer a mysterious, creepy, haunted doll out in the dark, mysterious woods. It's, it's a lost kid's toy. And if you were to return it to the farmer, probably in the condition in which you found it, being filthy, dirty, and nasty, they'll probably throw it away. Often we assign purpose and meaning and value to an object that doesn't actually have any of that to the person from which it originated. Which brings us back to archaeology as a horror trope. Because the way the general public interacts with archaeology is at that individual level. The general public is fascinated by individual archaeological finds, a site a building, a artifact. How many times have you seen pictures on the internet of pretty shiny gold objects that are, you know, the, the latest hoard found, the latest Viking or Celtic hoard that's been found in England? Or how many times have you seen a singular pipe or a singular figurine or a singular pot? And that's meant to represent the entire assemblage that has been found in North America at a Native American site. Or it, when it comes to historic sites, sometimes you'll find like post-contact sites, you'll find that there'll be just the best looking piece of ceramic ware or the fanciest looking fork or piece of jewelry or even the wig, wig rolls can be kind of fancy sometimes too. 
But you're only being presented with one or a handful of the best looking or most interesting objects. What you're not seeing are the five bags of broken glass or five bags of chipped stone or, you know, all of the other little things that we do collect because they are important to the interpretation of the site. But if I were to show you just this three pound bag of, of chipped rocks from a prehistoric site, you probably are not going to be that excited by it because it it's not that visually appealing. It's not sexy in the sense of capturing people's imagination. Nobody looks at a three pound bag of rock and starts coming up with ghost stories or, or myths around this bag of, you know, cast off rocks because that's what it is. It's the remains of what it's, it's what left of left behind by people flint napping or creating stone tools. So that's not as interesting to the general public and it's not even presented most times to the general public so who knows maybe it is interesting and you guys just never get a chance to see it but what you do get to see are the artifacts and the individual sites like how many times have you seen the beautiful uh victorian-esque style houses or the really well-preserved log cabins or um some just a mound or a group of mounds in an aerial shot or like uh, over in England you'll, or over in the Europe you'll see like a tower that's still standing. Stonehenge is a great example of that. Like Stonehenge, the site of Stonehenge is massive, but what you only ever see in pictures is the stone ring and the, the ring of stones is not the entirety of the Stonehenge site. The Stonehenge site stretches for miles. My point is, is even when we in the modern era present archeology span to the public, we're only presenting what we think is the most interesting or the best of the best to the public in general. We don't show you guys all of the basically trash that we've collected and we've kept because we're going to analyze it and we're going to use all of this stuff that we don't show you to help us figure out the story of the site and to help us expand our knowledge base about a time period or a habitation site. So even today, archaeologists kind of cultivate this air of mystique around archaeology by just kind of limiting the information that we release to the public. And it's not meant in a sinister way. Like we're not trying to like hide these bags of broken rocks. We're not doing that. We just don't think you're interested. And I mean, maybe you are. And if you are, you should, uh, you should go to your local archeologists or your local museums and be like, so, uh, so tell me about the bags of rocks. They're probably going to look at you like you're crazy, but if you insist, they might tell you some things about it. I can guarantee you there's at least one archaeologist, okay, there's many of them that I can think of, that would love to go on for hours and hours and hours about how you flint nap and what the different different flakes mean and, and what the debitage, that's the cast off stuff, what all the debitage means and how you can refit it all back together to get the original form that the thing was cart was chipped out of. And trust me, it exists. These people are real and they would love to talk to you. Seriously, go ask questions. But so even today, like I was saying, we cultivate this mysterious air. I think kind of accidentally. It is not an intentional happening because I know a lot of people who are, a lot of archaeologists and museum studies people who are very tired of the, 
whole idea of haunted archaeology or the haunted museum or, you know, cursed artifacts and, and the mummy and all that kind of stuff. I know a lot of people are actually just tired of hearing it. It's not even funny for them anymore. It is for me, but I have a warped sense of humor. So I know it's not being done intentionally, but the end result is the same. It's why even today we continue to see movies that start off with an archaeological excavation or a, a group of people out looking for ancient ruins or something like that. Because again, as far as the general public is concerned, these spaces, these lost and forgotten buildings and artifacts are still mysterious. Because yeah, you could take an archaeologist out to one of these sites and yeah, if they're taught, if, they, if they're familiar with what they're looking at, they're going to be able to tell you what that site is or give them enough time and enough things to study, they can tell you what it is. The average person doesn't have the knowledge base or the, the access to a, that knowledge base, nor do they have the skill set and the tools to analyze a site. So what they see, or, or an artifact, so what they see is a really cool object or a really cool old building or, you know, uh, a cave with some really cool carvings on the wall that aren't actual modern graffiti. Which modern graffiti is actually pretty cool too, if you really think about it. But I'm a very modern archaeologist. I like, I like my archaeology recent, so, but that's me. So what happens then is, like I said earlier, we try to fill in the blank. We as humans want to fill in the blank. We don't, we don't like blank spaces. We abhor a, a vacuum. So, so we want to know. And if we don't know, then we start drawing on things we've heard, things we've read, our own personal life experiences, and we start weaving all of that together around this unknown object or this unknown space, and we start creating a story around it. At its worst, this is something that we see in Ancient Aliens a lot, where they're, where they're redefining artifacts and sites in a way that fills a bias. I'm using Ancient Aliens because it's so prevalent everywhere, and there's a lot of people that truly do believe that some of these ancient sites are evidence of alien contact, when if you talk to any professional in the field, they'll be like, no, this, is, this was done by humans, there were no aliens involved, no aliens were being tried to be contacted here, this is just humans doing really cool stuff in the ancient past. So that reinterpretation, when it gets more of a foothold than the actual interpretation or the quote-unquote official interpretation, when that gets more of a foothold, it can actually change the relationship of the community or, or society in general with a site or an artifact. And this is something I talk about over on the Paranormal Archaeology Podcast, so I'm not going to go too into it too much in here. Because the point is, even today we are still fascinated with the past, and we are still fascinated with archaeology as a way of learning about the past, but we still think they're both a little spooky and, and mysterious, still, even today. Even in our great and advanced modern era, we, we still think the past is shrouded in mist and mystery. Because for a lot of us, it is. There's a lot of parts of history that we don't know because, well, we didn't experience it. And humans are very dependent on personal experience. And all of that brings us back to 
Lovecraft, and archaeology. And since I'm going to be talking about Lovecraft and archaeology, and the use of archaeology in spooky stories to kind of amp up the spookiness of it, I also want to talk about a lesser but still very well-known writer who was a contemporary and also an influence on Lovecraft. A, a little a little known author by the name of M.R. James. <laughs> and I'm being sarcastic. M.R. James is maybe not as famous as Lovecraft, but I am 100% willing to say that M.R. James is just as influential as Lovecraft was. And I recently read a really cool little snippet while I was doing research on this kind of stuff. And it was actually comparing the legacy of Lovecraft and it was comparing the legacy of Lovecraft to the legacy of James and also comparing the two men as writers. Because as I said, they were contemporaries. They were writing at the same time. They actually died within, I think, a few days of each. No, one year. They died one year apart. And I, I think the quote, and I'll link this article uh, in the show notes, but the article is uh, What Lurks Without M.R. James versus H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and it's on the website, The Shadows Are Icumen In. Incumen In? Thoughts and Rambles on Horror. Uh, it's a really cute little site, actually. And this article was written in. Uh, 2019 in November, and the author's name is just Megan, so please go check this out. As I said, I'll put the link in the show notes. But when I was reading this article, the, the quote that stuck with me the longest was, James was the father of the antiquarian ghost story. Lovecraft basically created the genre of cosmic horror. And that's the major comparison between the two of them. Both James and Lovecraft used archaeology and antiquarianism in their stories very heavily. Uh, the whole concept of the unknown being explored via antiquarianism and or archaeology was prevalent in both of their writings. The major difference is that James was writing more of a ghost story. Well, he was writing ghost stories, period. His sites were haunted. His artifacts were cursed, but they were cursed with earthly ghosts, um, real world history, that kind of stuff. James's stories also tended to have an ambiguous but happy, in quotes, in question marks, endings. Um, James was not afraid to eliminate characters, but the story always wrapped up in a cozy kind of way, which is fine. Um, James himself was an educated man. He was a, a scholar, or he was a professor. He taught many classes on history. He was known for his research into medieval manuscripts. He was the director and chancellor of different museums and uh, history boards at various colleges, mostly Cambridge. Um, so he, he was not only an educated man, but he was a lauded academic. He was also, according to the things I've read, <laughs> I did not know James personally, thank you. Uh, he was also supposed to be a very kind man, a very caring man, a very academic kind of gentleman. And his stories, though they did kind of examine the unknown uh, and especially the forgotten past, 
they weren't uh, as I hate to use the word problematic, but they weren't as well problematic as Lovecraft's stories are. Um, but they have the same staying power. And you probably don't realize, unless you know who James is, you probably don't realize how much of an influence M.R. James still has on the modern ghost stories and modern haunting stories today. He's a major influence. You can look at pretty much any ghost story or haunted house story, and you can probably find either a direct retelling or hard influence from James's writings. Which I can also say about Lovecraft, clearly. Uh, Lovecraft, we all know, Lovecraft had a rough childhood. Lovecraft had a rough adulthood. Um, the man suffered from mental disorders like major depression. He was probably, he, well, he was incredibly xenophobic. And he had a genuine fear of non-white Europeans. So if you, if non-white Christian Europeans, like he didn't even like white Jewish people. <laughs> like Lovecraft didn't like anybody, basically. Um, he, he used that fear in his stories and he used the concept of the unknown and he combined the two and that kind of got him his very, I would say, nihilistic cosmic horror, his, his old ones who exist alongside humanity, but have absolutely no care for humanity. They're, they're not, they're not loving gods. They're not hateful gods. They're, they're not really gods. They're just beings that exist alongside of us and yet are completely separate and they give no craps about humanity in general or, or the human world. So it's a very bleak outlook. Uh, Lovecraft also wrote stories that didn't have to do with the old ones or his Cthulhu mythos. So there's a lot of stories that Lovecraft wrote that are not in that thread, that cosmic horror thread. So, you know, just FYI. Um, but the theme is still there, that fear of the unknown and the use of archaeology and history and the antiquarian as a way of stoking that sinister atmosphere. Lovecraft's stories, however, unlike James's stories, Lovecraft's stories didn't always end ambiguously happy. They did end ambiguously sometimes, but the they were never hopeful endings. They were usually very bleak and very chilling than spooky. They're horror stories. They were meant to stay with you. They were meant to haunt you after reading them. And Lovecraft was a master of doing that. Especially if you look at the time period that he was writing in. Um, Lovecraft's xenophobia definitely comes out in his writings. I will not argue that at all. But because he was writing about because he was using that xenophobia in his stories to describe and to create the atmosphere of the unknown and the other in his stories, it stuck with people of the time because a lot of people were having the same issues that Lovecraft was having. Everybody thinks of the 1920s, which is predominantly the time that Lovecraft was writing most of this, um, as 
you know, the roaring 20s and everybody's out in their finery and we got fancy flappers and dandy men and, you know, prohibition ends in the early 1930s. And so everybody seems to think of this time period as being kind of like well-to-do and carefree and fun. And it really wasn't for people who weren't, well, A, white and B, well-to-do. The 1920s was actually kind of a crappy time, but I mean, you can say that about any point in history, really. We like we like to romanticize the past, which again comes back to what I'm talking about today with the whole use of, you know, the past as a spooky setting. Um, but we can't underestimate the influence of the time period on Lovecraft's writing and on the popularity of Lovecraft's writing. Lovecraft's stories picked up a great deal of following after he died during World War II because of the themes in the stories, not just the horror of the stories, but the, the the mechanisms that he used to convey that horror, which were a lot of xenophobia. Um so just keep that in mind. I'm not I'm not saying you should defend we're not I'm not defending Lovecraft with this. More than anything, I'm trying to kind of lift up uh James in this because despite all of this Despite the time period and, and the war that was going on, you know, it was the tail end of the First World War and the lead into the second, James still seems to be a pretty nice guy. Now, again, he was an academic, so, you know, he's in a very self-selected circle of people, but he did lose several students to the various wars and it hit him very hard when he lost his, when the students, when they died in the wars. And that influenced a lot of his ghost stories and a lot of the themes in his stories. So it's interesting that, you know, where we've got Lovecraft, who's fully embracing kind of the dark side of the 1920s. You've got James, who appears to be rising above it, question mark. So with all of this rambling intro, I hope you've all made it this far <laughs> and I hope you stick with me. We're going to go to break real quick. And when we come back, I'm going to start looking at some specific entries into both James and Lovecraft's writings that focus on the use of archaeology as a storytelling mechanism. We hope you're enjoying this episode, and we'd like to take a brief moment to thank our patrons for all of their support throughout the year through their generous donations over on the Patreon websites. Thank you to Brent Murphy, Grub Nash, Jerry Davis, Lizzie B, Paul Mayer, Randall Gaz, Taikashi Toyuka, Sarah Leach, Brian Goody, Haro Sakimon, Katie Steinmetz, Katie Swanson, Lisa Cipola, Michael Ball, Michelle Murphy, Pamela Eby, Sean Underwood, Steven Gernalt, and Penny Head. Thank you everyone for your continuing support. And now let's get back to the episode. So two stories that I want to look at to compare James and Lovecraft. Now, most I, I don't know if people will agree with me on my comparisons here, but two stories that I like from the two authors that I like to compare for this podcast. First story is The, the Nameless City by H.P. Lovecraft, which is a... I really like this story, and it's, it's I guess, one of his short stories. I don't know. All of his stories were basically short stories. But uh, The Nameless City, written by Lovecraft, let's see, it was uh, it was apparently published in 1921, which is the same year my grandmother was born. 
But the, the point of the story, or the plot of the story, is the narrator goes out into the middle of the Arabian Peninsula to look for a lost, quote-unquote, lost city. And I don't know if it's ever established that the narrator is himself an antiquarian, or if he's just, like, somebody who likes to look for lost things. Uh, but, spoilers, the narrator does find this lost city, and he's enchanted by it, and he's pulled into it, and then basically spooky stuff happens. It's a very atmospheric story. It's very, um, it was very engrossing. At least it was for me. And I like this story because it, as an archaeologist, it kind of pulls on those strings of the whole excitement of discovery of the unknown, or you, you know, there's something there. You, you know, if you look hard enough, you can find it. And then you do, you do discover the thing. And now you get to go and investigate the thing and explore the thing and learn about the thing. So it did a really great job of capturing that sensation for me as a reader. And, you know, of course, as, as, as always happens, the, the, the thing is of course, is of course cursed and full of monsters. And if you don't escape, you're going to be eaten and devoured by them and die. And that's the story. <laughs> Go read it. It's a much better read than my little plot here. My little synopsis of the plot here. But there's a, a lot of things that influenced this particular story of Lovecraft. Lovecraft was very influenced by the goings-ons of his time, which most authors are. And... This nameless city out in the desert is supposed to be Irim, the city of pillars. And I think we'll actually talk a little bit more about the whole idea of Irim and the city of pillars because there's some really great material out there that I'd like to expose you guys to. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of a cool story in general. But Lovecraft was very into the idea of... Arabic religion, quote-unquote, and Arabic mysticism, quote-unquote. Lovecraft had a very interesting relationship with mysticism. This particular story is kind of uh, an extension of that, his obsession with the Middle East and the actual, like, definition of Orientalism. Like, he was... At the same time that he was fascinated with the Middle East and Middle Eastern religions and Middle Eastern culture, as much as he bothered to learn about it, keep in mind he didn't do much in that, as much as he was fascinated by it, he was more fascinated by the idea of it. And at the same time, in his mind, that other was beneath him, beneath his culture, beneath his beliefs, beneath his religion. So at the same time that he was fascinated with it, he did not see it as being equal to him. It was just an exotic other that he liked to write about. There are some other influences that probably helped the creation of this particular story, like the format of this particular story, but the, the nitty gritty of it was 
Lovecraft was fascinated with the archaeology that was happening in the Middle East during this time, and he kind of half listened to it, and he kind of used that, along with his own biases, to create this story about Irem, uh, which is the, the nameless city. And, of course, you know, what lives, what lies within the nameless city, which is, of course, all of these uh, mysterious things, his non-Euclidean mathematics and, you know, monsters that have no explanation. And, of course, the city appears and disappears on its own. It is, at the same time, a living entity and you know, like a, a dead liminal space at the same time. And, and I think just like if you can step back and just read the story and kind of absorb the atmosphere of the story, it's a great story. And knowing a little bit about why the story exists and where the influences for the story came from adds to it. But I think you should read the story, try to read the story kind of as freshly as you can and, and then step back and learn a little bit more about it. But so there's that story. And, and I like that. It gives me feels as an archaeologist, I guess is what I'm saying. So I think it's a really great story, but it is heavily influenced by archaeology uh, of the time and the, the known history of the time and cultural affairs at the time. And then we have M.R. Um, James's story. I was exposed to this story as The Lost Crown, and I was exposed to it via a gameplay of a ghost hunting game that I was watching someone else play. It's CJU Plays played this game way back when it first came out. I'll try to leave a link to the first episode of it. Um, it's a slow game, I'm not gonna lie. If you like to watch gameplay, it's a slow game, so be prepared for that. But the, the name of the game is The Lost Crown, A Ghost Hunting Adventure. Basically what you're doing in this game is you're recreating the M.R. James story a warning to the curious, which I think is really, it's, it's really fun. I, I like when people take a story and adapt it into a game that you can play through. I, I'm a gamer. I like this kind of thing. Um, so I got really excited about this game. Now, now I've only just seen the game at this point. I've only just seen the game and I'm like, wow, this is cool. Okay. So it's based off of a story. And I was like, okay, well, it's probably loosely based on this story. Apparently the game developer is a huge James fan. So what he actually did was he put the effort and the, the time and effort in to recreate the setting and basically the storyline of A Warning to the Curious, adapted it for a game, a very long game actually, and, and put it out there. And it's, it's not a bad game. It's an older game by today's standards is an older game but it's still a point and click mystery adventure game and you're playing a character by the name of Nigel Danvers and he has his own the character in this game has his own background and story and everything and you can either go watch the gameplay because I it's the guy I like to watch is I think he's a good gamer and he makes it interesting to watch the game or you can go play it yourself it was put out in 2008 and I think it's only for P or it's only for console no, it's for PC. But anyway, if you can find it, go give it a shot, play it. It's a lot of fun. 
all of the elements of the story are in there. But so that got me interested in the the Lost Crown idea. And so I start looking it up. And it, again, the, the actual name of the story is A Warning to the Curious. So I looked that up and I found a 1972 movie adaption of the story, which is actually fairly good. It's, I mean, it's a 1972 movie, but that aside, it's a lot of fun to watch. And you can see a version of that on YouTube. Again, I'll try to remember to put that in the show notes. So that was a lot of fun. There's a lot of wackiness going on because, again, it's 1972. But it stays true to the actual story, which, again, the name of it is A Warning to the Curious. But in that story, bringing it back to archaeology, in that story, the, the story opens with an archaeologist or an antiquarian who is looking for the last crown of Anglica. And I don't, I don't know how much of this I really want to spoil for you guys, because I really like this story. Again, like, I really like The Nameless City. Also, these stories are, like, what, hundreds of years, a hundred years old now? <laughs> so the, the story opens up with an archaeologist or an antiquarian who is looking for the last lost crown of Anglica, which is supposed to be this artifact that protects the, the country from, I believe it says, like, raiding hordes. Which I'm sure isn't an issue today. We don't we don't have marauding Vikings, you know, raiding their way up and down the British coastline anymore. And maybe this is why. I don't know. Lisa, I would like to buy your rock. Because he's because this antiquarian is meddling in these affairs, and there is, of course, you know, that whole folk horror trope of, you know, the the very rural town of very old established families who are aware of the situation or aware of the treasure that they are basically protecting and then you have this outsider who comes in and starts meddling around with things even after he was warned not to and tragedy befalls him and that's the opening to the series and then it goes on from there that a new treasure hunter slash antiquarian comes to town basically following in this guy's footsteps and now we get to see the story through this person's eyes as they go through the discovery process of, you know, learning about this object, finding the object, being cursed by said object, trying to break the curse, and maybe successful, maybe it's not. So there's, there's that same element of doing the research, finding... A forgotten thing. In this case, it's an artifact. In Lovecraft's story, it's a it's a space. It's a place. You find it. You you the antiquarian, the the historian, the the one searching. You find it. You get to interact with it. Now you now you get to see that the thing that you were looking for is indeed real. You get to touch it. You get to hold it in your hands. You get to have the thrill of the discovery. And then everything goes sour. Because the thing that you were looking for after being warned, because I, I do believe both the, the nameless narrator and the antiquarian in the stories, both of them are warned not to go look for these things, not to go interact with these things, because they are not meant to be interacted with by the living or by humans. And both of them ignore these warnings. Both of them go forward and do it anyway. And both of them suffer the consequences of their interaction with 
what was meant to be forgotten. And and that's I that is kind of like the quintessential archaeology trope in most horror movies, horror and ghost movies, you know. Oftentimes the archaeology the archaeologists or the archaeology crew is told, "No, no, don't go look for that." And it's usually by locals again bringing in that folk horror element, you know. The it, Lovecraft used the the folk horror trope a lot in his stories um, where he'd have a, a town of well he would describe them in much different terms but he would have a, a town of people who are isolated who are purposefully keeping themselves separate from the larger cities or the larger towns because they like the quiet seemingly they like the quiet way of life or they have their own way their own rhythm to how life is meant to be lived and because of this that they have some kind of folk knowledge you know they're kind of like a witchcraft but not witchcraft you know they they have herbal lores they're they're more in tune with the land they you know they they know the signs better because they're not part of the everyday hustle bustle of the city they haven't given up their communion with the land yet so they're still very tied to it that again that's also another trope eh, that you see a lot in horror movies a really great example of this one is the movie midsummer that came out uh, two years ago now i mean it, it's a brutal horror movie it's a fabulously well done horror movie and it really does kind of i mean that is quintessential folk horror bam done but that movie is a great example of it you know you've got this isolated group of people who are you know they have their own rhythm to life and they bring in outsiders specifically for their own purposes and i don't want to ruin the movie for you but you should go watch it it's really good it is a horror movie and it is kind of brutal fyi but that idea you see both of these authors using it you see uh, james using it in um a warning to the curious where you know the outsider at this point is the the antiquarian slash archaeologist so that's also very common you know you have the the archaeologist anthropologist antiquarian going into these rural areas these 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 folkish areas and they're interfering or they they want to learn about it and and you know hilarity ensues uh, lovecraft does the same kind of thing he very lovecraft does it i mean sometimes he just blatantly has a town or a place where that's folkish or sometimes he will have immigrants basically people from far off lands who have mysterious knowledge or mysterious skills and because of the that knowledge those skills they they know more about the big bad evil thing than the antiquarian archaeologist who is looking for or studying that thing the commonality between the two of them is important it, it's not something to be unexpected it's not like Ooh, wow i can't believe the two of them were thinking the exact same thing at the exact same time like i said they were contemporaries they're both horror writers they're both suspense writers they're both writing about the unknown they're both using the same kind of tropes it's it's not unreasonable that they're they're both thinking on the same wavelength i just think it's interesting that we have these two writers who are incredibly influential one in the realm of ghost stories the other in the realm of cosmic horror 
And their influence stretches even into the modern day, into modern horror and modern everything. And it really does kind of stretch into everything because the other thing that Lovecraft and James both influence is not just the media, but also modern perspectives on real life ghost hunting and real life interactions with ghosts and demons and that kind of thing. You see a lot of common threads with Lovecraft's descriptions of cult activities and cultism and the worship of the old ones. You see a lot of common threads with that go through um, people's beliefs of how real world other world entities can be contacted and or interacted with and Lovecraft is a really great example in that there are groups of people who do believe that Lovecraft wasn't making up his cosmic horror and the ideas of the old ones they believe that Lovecraft was being influenced by these cosmic forces and was writing that down as their prophet, I guess. Um, Lovecraft himself would 100% deny this. Even during Lovecraft's day, he was asked several times about, you know, are you, are you writing about real things? Like, are you really, are the old ones real? You know, is, is the city of pillars real? Is Insimuth real? Is, um, the city in the mountain of madness is that a real place and lovecraft was always like no i made this up this is my story i made this up these are my characters my ideas lovecraft never at any point tried to build the idea that he was being influenced by some kind of cosmic force james doesn't have as much of that issue because james wasn't writing about excuse me james wasn't writing about cosmic forces he was staying pretty close to the planet Earth. And so he's talking about ghosts and he's talking about, you know, possessions and haunted things and real world tangible objects and real world tangible ideas. However, a lot of the ways that James has his characters interact with the supernatural are ways that we see people in ghost hunting shows interact with the supernatural today. The, the whole idea of, you know, seeing shadows that are actually, I don't want to say demonic forces, but they're not like good either. So evil entity. The use of what I would describe as sleep paralysis, as interaction with the ghost. I'm not saying James made this stuff up himself. And uh, same thing with Lovecraft. A lot of the elements in Lovecraft stories... Lovecraft didn't make them up out of whole cloth. He's borrowing them from other things. Like all authors, I don't care who you are or how big of an ego you have, all authors are borrowing ideas from other things. There's nothing new. It's just how can you combine these, these ideas in interesting ways that will capture people's attention. James and Lovecraft were masters at this. But because they did it and they are so they were so good and are so influential we can probably connect the dots between modern interactions with these kind of things, demonic forces, ghosts, the unknown, you know, aliens. 
if you've if you've ever uh jason colavito has a book out called cult of the alien gods again i'll leave a link but it directly connects lovecraft with ancient aliens today's television show ancient aliens and it's it's a very convincing argument it's a very convincing argument um so highly recommend that book to go read to see the connection there but it's kind of my point they both of them are so influential with their fictional writing that it influenced media from their point from from their timeline into ours and that media as we all know directly influences how we as society interact with the world around us and so we may not even be aware that we're drawing our interactions with whatever from a media source but we probably are and that's actually where I get my jokey little title about, you know, blaming Lovecraft for everything pseudo-archaeology because a lot of it can be traced to Lovecraft. But again, Lovecraft wasn't writing in a vacuum and was borrowing ideas from earlier times. So, you know, Lovecraft's stuff was very heavily influenced by the Victorian era, as was James. And so a lot of the ideas that both of them are using are coming out of the Victorian era. So you see a lot of seances, you see a lot of ghost knocking, you see a lot of spooky voices and shadow people which are the exact same things you see in pretty much any ghost hunting show on television today. And if you ever go out with a ghost hunting group, uh, I'm pretty sure you probably have one in whatever area you live in, especially if you live in a larger city. If you ever get the chance to go out on a ghost hunt with them, I kind of, I kind of recommend doing it, honestly. It's really, A, it's kind of fun. It's, it's, I'm not going to lie, it's kind of fun. It's a lot of fun. And B, it's educational in that you get to see how people perceive lost or forgotten or abandoned locations. Again, these are topics I go over on the Paranormal Archaeology podcast, but it's important to understand how people, how modern day people interact with historical locations based on whether or not they think that location is paranormal in some way. So is it haunted or not? Um, is it possessed or not? Is it a demonic portal or not? It's fun to laugh about these things, but there are people that truly do believe in these things. And because of that true belief, that changes how they interact with certain locations. And as a non-believer, even if you do not believe in this stuff, totally go on a ghost hunt sometime. Go out with a group of living, breathing, real life people who are really honestly going out to try to find evidence of the paranormal or the afterlife. Don't be a dick. And just kind of observe. Even as a skeptic, your interactions with a space or an object are going to change based on whether or not you've been told that object is supposed to be paranormal or not. But a lot of these interactions and a lot of these beliefs that we have around what constitutes paranormal activity and how we interact with that paranormal activity really can be traced back to James and Lovecraft. There are other influences. I'm not saying they're the only ones, but they are the strongest influences. So you're seeing, so to me, it's interesting to see how James and Lovecraft both have not only influenced modern media, modern horror, modern ghost stories, but also the real life modern interactions with paranormal and weird spooky stuff and ancient aliens. So let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, I will probably do a very fast wrap up because I, I've kind of talked about what I want to talk about. 
Everyone, we hope you are enjoying this episode, and if you are, we would like to ask for your support by liking and subscribing to this podcast on your various podcast services. Even leaving a comment also helps. The algorithm is everything, and every little click helps. If you'd like to go the extra mile, we do have a Patreon with several different levels of membership that have a slew of benefits such as merchandise and access to a members-only Discord. Thanks again for your support, and let's get back to the show. So, as I said, going forward this month, I have several things planned for the Lovecraft slash Cthulhu versus archaeology or uses archaeology. If you're unaware, I do have a YouTube channel, and if you could go over there and subscribe to my channel, that would be fabulous, because I really am trying to get to a thousand subscribers. Not that it's going to do anything for me at this point, because they've completely revamped the rules for how you get monetized, and at this point I don't even care anymore, but I do want that thousand viewer mark because I will feel accomplished. But anyway, enough rambling. Uh, if you do go over to the YouTube channel, and even if you don't subscribe, you will see that I have videos up that this month are going to be dealing with various elements of the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraftian archaeology. And one of those things, which I'm actually kind of excited about, uh, for Christmas a couple years ago, I got a cookbook that's called the Necronomonomnom. And it's got a whole bunch of these really, really good recipes, actually. I've cooked several of them. They're very tasty. But the first half of the the cookbook has all of the recipes laid out as if they were like these arcane rituals, which is a very interesting connection for me as an archaeologist, because the act of cooking culturally for a lot of groups is seen as a magical act. So because food itself is seen as medicine or healing or you know, you can make a potion or make a curse out of the food, out of the things that you put into the food. And it's it's still kind of a folk belief. And you do also see elements of this whole like kitchen witchery or modern herbalism in things like the modern New Age witchcraft or any of the modern heathenry religions. So it's still very much a living idea that food can be akin to magic. So the fact that I have like this Cthulhu cookbook, this Cthulhu inspired cookbook, and the recipes are written out as arcane spells for me to cast instead of I'm not cooking, I'm casting, I'm summoning things. This is really funny. Um, the back half of the book does have the recipes written out in plain English, so you can actually like figure out what you're supposed to be doing. Though the ritual ones are actually pretty legible, so I mean, you, if you pay attention, you can pretty much figure out what you're supposed to be doing. So what I've done is I've filmed myself performing some of these arcane rituals to summon forth the old ones. Um, and then, yeah, the, the recipes, like I said, are really tasty. So those videos are going to be up. And I've also got some interesting... I found a game. Uh, so I do have some gameplay that's going to go up. And the game is, uh, basically it's Sherlock Holmes versus the Cthulhu Mythos. And, uh, that's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a point and click discovery game. And I'm going to try to speed it up a little bit. Cause like I'm terrible at playing games. So probably I'll only leave the highlights up for y'all, but yeah, go check that out. I think the whole, uh, Sherlock Holmes Cthulhu connection is a lot of fun. And Sherlock Holmes stories often had 
elements of the un- unexplained in them. Of course, they were always explained by the end, which was kind of the point. But there are a few stories where archaeology or antiquarianism was used as a tool to kind of set the the scene. Uh, and it's always a spooky, spooky scene. So again, it's the use of archaeology to create the idea of the unknown. This particular game, of course, not being like canon, either Cthulhu or Sherlock Holmes, because it's a modern game and it's not, it's not at all related. Was is not at all like stamped by the original authors as part of their actual storylines. Uh, but it is a lot of fun. I will say the Sherlock character in the game is like a massive dick. I. I do not understand the modern fascination with making Sherlock such a jerk to everyone. Like, everyone. And also him being such a jackass to Watson. But it is what the game is, and I will be playing that on the channel. And and I have found a couple other little random things on the internet that I kind of want to talk about that do actually tie into archaeology, modern archaeology, like archaeology of today being used to support the idea that the Cthulhu mythos is a real ancient thing. I hope that came out clearly. There's a couple different artifacts, quote unquote artifacts, that are being passed around on the internet, so you know, that are that people are claiming are evidence of the old ones or the dweller in the deep and that kind of stuff so we will talk a little bit about that and that is absolutely 100% proof uh pseudo-archaeology so that'll be that'll be fun and yeah so this you know stick around for the rest of the month of february as we work our way through different lovecraftian and cthulhu-esque ideas as they relate to archaeology and well a little bit of gaming and food. You can't go wrong with food. Anyway, thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have, please like and subscribe. If you've noticed, we have moved hosts. We're now on Anchor FM, but that shouldn't be affecting any of the uh, podcast feeds. If it is, I apologize. And I will try to get that fixed as soon as I am aware of it. And oh, one last thing. The Fantasies blog is... Uh, I want to say on hiatus, but that's mainly because I can't stand WordPress. The format that they have for you to actually create a blog post is just awful. I hate it. I, I absolutely hate it. It's unnecessarily complicated and there's no way to turn it off as far as I can find. So instead of continuously making myself crazy, I've just moved the blog over onto the Patreon site. Now, you do not have to subscribe. You do not have to become a patron in order to read the blog posts. You will have to subscribe if you want access to any of the Patreon benefits, but as far as just the blog posts, those will always be open and free to people. So if you want to continue to read the blog, head on over to the Patreon site now, which is just Patreon slash Fantasies. Uh, and if you want to support us on Patreon, it's cool too. I will totally, totally be down for that. But thank you all for listening. Thank you all for subscribing. I truly appreciate everybody who has supported us over the last six-ish years. And um, yeah, this is the end of the official episode one for season seven of the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. 
Thank you again for listening to this episode. We hope you have enjoyed it. And if you have, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Every little click helps with the algorithm and helps get our show out there to more ears. If you would like to support us monetarily, you can always head over to the Patreon, where we have several levels of membership that have a variety of benefits to them, uh, the most exciting of which is probably the members-only Discord. The Patreon is also where we are currently hosting the blog, which is free to everyone, not just members. So feel free to head over there for things such as the show notes or just blog updates as to what we are doing here with the show. This episode was produced and edited by Sarah Head. The music in this episode is Atlantis by Audionautics. And We Don't Dig Dinosaurs by Archaeosoup Productions. Thank you once again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. We don't do dinosaurs! See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it? Honestly.